You are listening to Global Chat Radio, streaming from Tuart Hill here in Western Australia. And now we have the Dr. Bernie show, and this time we are unpacking the NDIS. Hello, listeners. This is Dr. Bernie for another session, and it is spring here in Perth, and wherever you are on the planet, I hope you are well. And uh, today I have got Leanne Marabella, who will be... Um, talking with me about the National Disability Insurance Scheme. And uh, it may be quite foreign for um, those that are not in Australia, but certainly it is foreign to many people who are in Australia, so that's why we are focusing on this topic. I also have Howard Lance, as listeners who have listened to our show before, is a regular now on this show, and he is a program manager of Global Chat Radio. So welcome, Leanne, and welcome, Howard. Thank you. Now, Leanne, I'd like to um, get you to introduce yourself and a little bit more about yourself to our listeners out there. Okay, I guess I'm a, um, a university-qualified social worker. Um, went to university at Curtin University and graduated in 1995. Um, my first exposure to the area of disability was actually in 1993 as a second-year student, um, where I did my first placement as a social work student at an organisation called the Cerebral Palsy Association of Western Australia. And that's where I ended up getting my first lot of experience working with families and children and adults with a disability. I then went on to doing my honours degree, um, also at the Cerebral Palsy Association who sponsored me. And I looked at doing some research into the stresses that affected people who cared for children with cerebral palsy. And what I found out from that is that a lot of the systemic things such as uh, rules, regulations, policies and procedures are often the most stressful um, events of caring for a child or an adult with disability. Most people ended up saying to me that they could um, cope with the care bit of and the grief and loss of having a child or a person with a disability and how that affected their own mental health. But the thing that actually really got in the way was our systems um, and having worked 27 years across mental health and disability, nothing's changed, unfortunately. No, unfortunately, it hasn't changed. And as uh, many listeners will have heard us say, that the system is relatively broken. Um, but I, I do want to remind listeners that because my, my specialist area and specialist interest area is the migrant refugee situation, um, so one of the things that we'll cover when talking with Leanne today is what it means to have such a scheme for someone who is disabled and is from a uh, different cultural background from mainstream and who speak a different language and who do not know the system. So, um, so Leanne, what's been your experience, I suppose, in servicing people who really have the stigma about disability and also presenting to them that such a service does exist? It's about understanding a very complex system and I find that um, there are so many changes always happening across the state and the country that it's really hard to keep up. So my advice to people is 
is to try and get the right people around you. Mm. I find that if you can engage the right services, the right therapists, the right support workers, um, and you know even advocates if you um, do need one, you're much better off at being able to navigate the NDIS as well as then get what you actually need. Um, the NDIS actually was a fantastic concept and I believe that it can still mm. be a fantastic concept. Um, I do have a lot of hope for that because there's a lot of good people working in the industry. But it was all about enabling people with a disability to have choice and control in their life for them to be able to live what people would call an ordinary mm. life. So that equivalent of any other person without a disability. And the supports that the government actually fund through the NDIS are meant to be able to help people achieve that. Mm, okay. So um, it, it sounds, you know, when it was actually introduced, um, it sounded like a great, great um, initiative. But we hear that, you know, for the cohort that we're talking about today, it has been quite difficult to access that. And I'm just wondering, is it the language? Um, you know, is it just getting the message across or is it still very much a stigma that is just, you know, we don't have any disability in our family. Um, we can just push along on our own because the minute that we actually get an outside service provider in, then that really labels us. So do you think, you know, some of that plays into it? Absolutely. I think it's actually probably a combination yeah. of a lot of those factors. Um, just to reiterate for those people who may have only just joined us now, when we talk about the NDIS, it's called the National Disability Insurance Scheme. And it's not meant to run as an insurance company, mm. um, but it's about in. Um, it should be more assurance rather than insurance, insurance yeah. which is about assuring people that mm. they're going to be able to receive the care and support that they need to be able to live a good and ordinary life. So for the cohort that we're talking about, um, I definitely think that there's a lot that is actually responsible for in terms of the, the language and the concepts that the scheme actually utilises. And one of the things that's important is that the National Insurance National Disability Insurance Scheme actually works on legislation. So it's how that legislation, which is law, is actually then interpreted by the government departments and then all of the people that stem out from that mm. working in the industry then understand how that legislation applies. Mm. And I think that's actually what um, gets in the way yeah. is that not a lot of people, including people that work for the NDIS, have still got their head around what the language yeah. actually means. And they're still working a lot of that out. The other thing is um, we're in Western Australia at the moment and Western Australia only came over to actually having the NDIS provide services for people with a disability as of the 1st of December 2020. And COVID um, and all of the complexities mm -hmm. that that's actually had um, on the world has actually also made that a lot more complex as well in terms of people being able to get access, people being employed in the industry, um, people being upskilled and trained in what we understand the languages around the mm -hmm. NDIS. Mm -hmm. So people who come uh, from another culture, from another li linguistic group, um, trying to understand the concepts when a lot of us who 
speak English yeah. as our first language, don't, don't understand it, I know. <laughs> is yes. very, very difficult. Yeah. So there is a lot of written information, but even going through the written information, it's a lot to get your head around. Um, it's not simple, written information either, even if it's translated, don't you think, Yeah. Yeah. And it, there are um, what they call easy guides mm. um, and easy language guides on the NDIS mm. website and even they then still confuse me. Yeah. So a lot of it is about actually um, if you're trying to access the NDIS is about maybe preparing yourself with questions about it and not feeling like you cannot keep on asking questions, maybe mm. posing them in a different frame or framework Um to be able to try and understand what it is that the NDIS offers. Yeah. It's a case of you don't know what you don't know, don't you think? Yes, you Do don't you know? know what you don't know. Mm. And then the NDIS doesn't fund other sectors. So if there is, for example, health, um, how does um, the health department, which is funded in Western Australia mainly by the state with mm. additional funds from the Commonwealth, but the state runs our hospitals... And then you've got primary care, which is GPs, where they're actually funded by the Commonwealth. Mm. So the complexity still exists between what's funded by the state and then what's funded by the Commonwealth. And the NDIS is a Commonwealth-funded initiative. Mm. Mm. So when we talk about disability listeners, there's um, the physical disability, as Leanne alluded to. And then there are the mental health issues, which uh, it falls under the psychosocial disability Right, yeah. and that's a blurry category anyway. It, uh, mm. it is very blurry because let's just say someone has a diagnosis of depression mm. or anxiety, that doesn't automatically qualify someone to be able to access the National Disability Insurance mm. Scheme. What a person has to demonstrate, and a lot of this, time, a lot of this is actually by um, professionals such as psychologists, um, psychiatrists, mm. maybe occupational therapists, social workers um, and the alike, that they actually have to provide written evidence as to how does that diagnosis impair a person's functionality permanently. Mm. It mm. has to be a permanent, not intermittent disability. So if someone has a diagnosis that is likely mm. not going away without intense treatment so it could be that the NDIS could fund services to help someone maintain or improve their life around their disability mm. being the psychosocial disability but right. if the disability is deemed to be able to be treatable and it's only episodic then it may not qualify hence the problem yes <sighs> now Howard yes I see your face uh, grimacing there a bit do you have any comments well, I, w I wasn't aware of the distinction with psychosocial oh, thing okay. because um, we people in the mental health field are very much about using a recovery model, which in in a way is, is all about somebody being able to function in the community. And in theory, if somebody goes along to the... Um, to their doctor and complains about being depressed or is uh, low yeah. moods, then automatic, more often than not, the doctor will give them some happy pills, and they go off and live their life supposedly. But or that, a mental health care plan to see. Or put them on a on a plan, yes, and yeah. that'll help. Um, 
many of those people are able to function. So that seems to me that that would disqualify them then from using um, NDIS. But I also, on the same hand, I think I'm correct in saying that somebody who's got um, diagnosed with bipolar, which to my way of thinking is a form of depression, Mm. they, if they're having big swings, then maybe they might qualify it. Would I be right or not? Yes, if it is demonstrated to show that it's likely to be lifelong and enduring. Okay, well, it, it just but becomes... But that's hard to demonstrate. I mean, Very really. hard. Yeah, exactly. And that's the problem, I think, that the mental health system in Western Australia actually has a problem with, mm. is that what is actually then going to qualify someone to be able to access that. Mm. And... You know, when, you when you think of it, the supports that the NDIS offer, they would be able to help people actually become less dependent on all systems, whether it's the federal or the state, yes. if they were actually funded, given the recovery framework. And I like the way that you actually highlighted recovery there, Howard, as well, is that from my perspective, having worked in um, government in uh, recovery-orientated services as well as promoting that, especially in the peer work field... Um, the disability field haven't actually caught up and they don't actually um, promote recovery. No, I noted that too. Is that right? Mm. They talk in a very deficient manner Mm. in terms Mm. of what what can't you do versus what What can can you do. What is possible. Well, that, that scares me, but also... I've just come off a Zoom session for an hour and a half talking with lived experience people and we're very much about... Um, we want to be able to function and it's not about what's wrong with us it's about what's happened mm-hmm. and, and how do we get on with our life and we've, uh, the finish of it we spoke about the fact that we like to be healed which is a different concept from being cured um, but the, the thing about mental health very much what I've noticed is that it's, it's episodic somebody be confined for, for a couple of years and all of a sudden something goes wrong or, the, or they get re-traumatised and back they are. So how does the NDIS deal with people like that? Um, I think the answer is, is unfortunately probably don't. That's where maybe secondary and primary health is actually more accessed. Mm. And it's not that the NDIS doesn't actually want people to actually improve their functionality, but to get in you have to actually demonstrate your deficits of what you can't can't do in order to be able to get into the system, which is not very recovery well, it, orientated. It, yeah. It's almost like you have to demonstrate a severity. Absolutely. And yes. <laughs> but, well, that's that, co- that, that is, it, it contradicts this recovery aspiration. Well, we, we just had a cons- yeah. we, we had a work working group last week on, on the program mm. the the project that I'm working on with the mental health commission, and it was all about um, you've got to demonstrate how bad you've got to be at crisis point mm. and go to emergency department before you get any attention whatsoever. So yeah. people have to make out it's worse than what it is to even get seen. But to come back to the the other point that you were making about people on social uh, psychosocial treatment plans if I want to use that word and I don't like the word treatment plan either Mm. but that's what's used as far as I understand it um, is that does the NDIS fund somebody that needs to see a psychiatrist for instance? They do not fund psychiatry and that's been one of the hardest things is that um, especially when you're also looking at people that may have co-occurring issues such as maybe um, 
maybe high-functioning autism, um, ASD, or um, um, ADHD, for example, those particular diagnoses, um, so ASD, that being autism, is actually fundable through the NDIS, but ASD is not treatable through the mental health system. Mm. And yet the symptoms and behaviours and emotional regulation issues that often people with ASD in, um, experience, um, they need treatment from psychiatry, psychiatry. in addition to... Um, some kind of therapy in regards to helping them learn yeah. how to be able to respond and cope to their environment and those strategies to assist them to live their ordinary life. So the two systems don't talk again. So does that, if they don't fund psychiatry, do they fund psychology? Not for counselling per se. Not for treatment. It, yeah. mm. So it's all about the way that you use your language. Mm. So I actually do offer people therapeutic interventions mm. or what I call psychosocial therapeutic interventions, but it's got to be related to a person's goal. So if their goal is to be able to manage their emotions, that can be a goal for a person on the NDIS. It is not about me treating the anxiety or the depression, mm. but it's me about increasing their ability to function Mm. Capacity With building. Capacity building. Mm. It's all about capacity building, which is exactly the same as what yeah. we do in treatment yeah. anyway. Yeah. We try and build people's yeah. capacity to be able to uh, yeah. respond in a more appropriate and healthy way to their feelings and thoughts, and that's what we do. But it's all about that language. Yeah. And when we get back to the language, how do you learn that language when it's taken me 18 months? Yes, and that's, that's a provider. So that's the service provider having that challenge of learning a whole different semantics and vocabulary that is suited for NDIS sort of planning. But, but um, if, if, if I come, if, if I've spent, um, um, I don't know, so many years living in Iran or, or some Middle Eastern country and I've escaped war-torn Iran or even war-torn Ethiopia and I come over here and, and I'm in a bad way, mm -hmm. How on earth, what do I do? How do I find out about the NDIS? What, 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 what do I do when I'm not feeling too good? Um, what would be my pathway to getting on the NDIS? Are you able to give us a, um, a story if, to illustrate mm. how somebody coped with something like that? Yeah, let's maybe unpack it, Leanne. So, you know, typically, okay, um, someone, as Howard says, is from a different culture, a different language, has been here about five years, maybe less, and, um, you know, someone, a friend tells them there is the National Disability Insurance Scheme. And uh, let's make it simple. It's a physical disability, okay? Let's just make it simple. So let's unpack that. So what would this person be doing step by step to actually get to getting a package, and what is that package? So let's unpack what would be the steps to get the package. Okay, so um, firstly they would need to be directed to a health professional that knows about the NDIS. I guess that's a little bit of what capacity building needs to happen in the sector is that at all points of where people access the health system, so from general practitioners to physiotherapists, mm. to emergency departments, emergency physicians, mm. nurses, all of those people actually need to have the knowledge about the NDIS so that if we were to do that whole wraparound kind mm. of service to people who are um, needing support, 
whatever entryway that they get into our health system, that person should know at least a little bit about the NDIS. Yes, at this, yes. At that, mm-hmm. at, we're at least know how to refer someone to um, an, a service that does have a lot more expertise in that. And that's where the gap is at the moment. It's that the NDIS, you know, started and was launched and they went go guns and for people who are educated and live in western australia and have got a lot of capacity with their own families to organize money and appointments mm. and all that kind of stuff it works really well for but for 20 percent of people who are vulnerable it doesn't so mm. for that person let's just say they do come across um let's let's say they've had a health event and they've gone to their general practitioner and the gp is knowledgeable about the ndis um the general practitioner um can actually refer them to the um website but that's only in english at the moment Mm. so it might be to an organization that's an advocacy service such as um edac which is the disability advocacy center and they've changed their name to kin k-i-n k-i-n yes um or midlas which Mm -hmm. is the midland information disability advocacy Advocacy service service, uh, legal advice service um they have a lot of hats or sussex street um, community service there's right. quite a few disability um, organizations but some of those organizations do have um, funds for interpreting so it might be about referring them to an advocacy service that mm. might be able to start the process um, another one would be um, an organization called people with disabilities yeah, and and yeah. then disability uh, developmental disability western australia they seem there, to be yeah. it, it, I, there are so many when the ndis was actually launched so many service providers um came to being providing ndis services yep. so again i think you know the multiple of uh companies or agencies out there gps probably are overwhelmed they don't know which one they should actually be referring their clients to or their patients to they wouldn't no. probably okay. no mm. again it's all about a bit of luck of who you get around you yeah. i think and who your entry point is mm. but i guess that's been the problem is that a lot of people aren't accessing it and you know a lot of funds in terms of information and um you know advertising and all that Mm. kind of stuff around the ndis has really been focused on mainstream Mm. and although there are some organizations that can focus on more vulnerable groups than people that aren't Mm. accessing it including aboriginal populations Mm. Mm. um that we've still got a long way to go um and i guess the other thing is as well is, is that in terms of access does the visa that a person, if they've come over from um, mm. as a refugee or a humanitarian entrant, do they actually have um, a visa that makes them eligible as well? Because mm. there's a lot of eligibility criteria before they can even apply. Mm. Okay. So let's suppose that uh, the GP does refer to an appropriate agency. What happens to that person then? Okay, so let's say they get a really great advocate Mm. and at those um, organisations that we mentioned, Mm. they've got some amazing Mm. advocates. And so um, they're um, working with this advocate that can interpret the language. Um, They will actually download from the website 
of the NDIS an application um, for eligibility form mm -hmm. and then they will need to complete this form that will require them to have medical evidence mm. of Which their means disability. letters from specialists and psychologists, no doubt, yes. Yes, yeah. so if we're just looking at the physical disability, mm -hmm. it would be, um, let's say it is someone... Um, with cerebral palsy, let's say it's a child with, that has cerebral palsy that um, mm. has entered into Western Australia and uh, they need um, treatment, so it might have been a paediatrician mm -hmm. and then maybe a clinical psychologist also to be able to ascertain um, if the, the child also has some kind of level of maybe global developmental mm. delay or intellectual mm. disability and then possibly even... Um, letters from physiotherapists, mm. occupational therapists, speech therapists in terms of the person's communication. So then that would form um, attachments to the application. It, so gets got, it gets submitted into the NDIA and then they consider whether or not the person meets the eligibility criteria against the legislation. Okay, so I, I'm just hang on. So I'm assuming that the advocate will be collating, gathering these letters, not this person who doesn't know the language, wouldn't know how to begin asking for these letters of evidence. The advocates yeah. would be involved in every okay. step of the way. They'd okay. be asking those particular questions, yeah. Okay, and, and contacting the specialists on behalf of the person. Maybe, maybe not, depending mm. upon their capacity. The okay. Western Australian Government have actually funded a lot more in advocacy this year okay. um, for disability org organisations. Whether or not that meets the need, I'm not um, okay. entirely sure. Right. But I know that um, at least five disability organisations um, had increased funding for, for advocates because there is a long wait list. There is a need for it. Sorry, Howard, you were going to ask. I was just going to ask... Um, I'm Billy Brown from wherever, mm. and and I, I put an application. Who pays for that? So if if I'm what I'm getting at is if that if that application is unsuccessful, who picks up the tab? If you've gone to pay for psychiatrists and stuff like that at the beginning. Well, I, I don't know whatever is required. Let's okay. say, let's say I, I, whatever the process is, mm. I put it forward, and I and I jump through all the hoops. But who pays for the me on the way through and then I get a no who's up for the bill oh okay so um so there there is I know that if you asked a practitioner for a letter so someone's going to be charged and maybe out of the good will of their heart they may not charge but if someone is going to be charged who will pay for that it's usually the person applying mm. so before they and you can't retrospectively claim mm. um for that to actually um be done and paid for beforehand. So again, great and well if you have got capacity, you're, you've got employment, you've got family support, mm. you know how to access the system. You know, some GPs may bulk bill, but you know, for them to write a letter and yeah. stuff like that, do they get paid from yeah. Medicare? Not necessarily. No. Um, so yeah, it can be actually quite uh, an excessive cost upfront. Um, that is being looked at. Um, there was meant to be these independent assessments that came in from the NDIS. However, um, I do functional capacity assessments and it takes me between 10 and 17 hours of my time yeah, to be able to is. do that. Yes. And they were only going to pay for three and just have a very generic question um, questionnaire 
usually um, given by someone who doesn't have uh, the expertise across all areas it would be wrong for me as a social worker to be assessing what a physio Mm. or a psychiatrist Mm. needs to assess Mm. so independent assessments have now been scrapped because the sectors across all of the states have actually um, refused that approach Mm -hmm. but they're still working out Uh, a system to get in Mm, yeah so yes so the person will have to dip into their own pocket and as Leanne said, you can't retrospectively claim for it. So you may get all these letters and pay for these letters and you still may not get the NDIS. Is that correct? That's correct. So that's why I would probably seek some information first from Mm. someone who works in the NDIS sector, Mm. such as an advocate, that they would be able to quickly work out whether or not you may or may not be eligible. Um, So some people who may have a very mild physical disability cerebral palsy can be severe it can be very Mm. mild as well Um, would it be reasonable and necessary to expect the commonwealth to pay for um, therapy when someone may only need once a fortnight or once a month physiotherapy where anyone that would be considered an Mm. um, what they say an ordinary life not an ordinary person Mm. but someone living an ordinary life such as myself I've got injuries from car Mm. accidents and other things Mm. I pay for physiotherapy myself to Mm. keep myself Mm. well I do have a disability but it's not really reasonable to be expecting the NDIS to pay for that so it Mm -hmm. does rely on severity so if you're talking to someone that you know you can that has the confidence and the knowledge and being able to see does this person's disability affect and impair them significantly um, and will it be for Mm. life, then they will be able to direct them on what they would need and it would be more likely that they would be accepted under the NDIS. Okay, so let's take it to the next stage. So letters have been collated, submissions gone through. What's the waiting period, um, Leanne, usually? Before you hear the verdict? Um, I wish I could say yeah. with any definitive answer. <laughs> How long answer. is a piece of string? <laughs> How long is a piece of string? Yeah. Um, I know that even when people are asking for reviews, so let's say someone has been su- successful mm. at being accepted by the NDIS and they've been given a plan, that even when people are being reviewed, there's meant to be only like 14 days in between someone getting an, um, an answer that they are likely right. to be reviewed. Some people have been um, waiting for four to six months for wow. even a review. So the system is overloaded. Mm. Um, it's not great in its response rate. Um, I do believe in the squeaky wheel syndrome. And for those that don't know, the louder... The, Yes, the louder. The, <laughs> the, the more in the face, the louder the squeak or the more polite yes. but in the face you are of someone yeah. ringing them up, um, it may actually assist. And that's the advocate's um, job really, isn't it? The advocates yes. can do that yeah. as well. Okay. And if it's something is actually urgent, um, the health system in Western Australia is, especially for someone with a, you know, health disability could be mental health should be picking up 
the gap mm. and I know that the Chief Health Professions Office are working on a lot of projects at the moment, especially Correct. for people, for example, who have a sudden diagnosis of multiple sclerosis mm. and deteriorate or and need to be discharged home or MND or a stroke, for right. example, yeah. who are under the age of 65 because the NDIS for people under the age of 65 let's say a young person has a stroke or a spinal incident yeah. and everything else, um, if the NDIS aren't picking people up for a few months, even after they've got all the specialist reports from the hospitals and stuff, the person can't just sit there waiting in hospital beds, mm. although that is what is happening because no one's putting their hand up to say that we will take the responsibility. However, I know that the health department have got a project that they're trying to work on this as soon as possible because they have recognised there is a lot of gaps between the state, the Commonwealth right, and people okay. who need urgent assistance. Right. So there won't mm. be, you know, there's no fear about if you have a stroke, you're not going to be cared for, but there's still the argy-bargy behind the scenes about who's going to pick up the tab. Okay. All right. So uh, let's, let's be positive. So you get the letter or, you know, um, Miss X from... Ethiopia gets a letter and says, yes, you are eligible, you will get the package. What happens then? Well, now you've got to know how to spend the money ah. and interpret the package. <laughs> and again, it took me six months to figure out this for myself. So let's assume that you've got that really great advocate and uh, they have um, some lists of some support coordinators that have capacity and when I talk about capacity that they don't have long wait lists yes. to get into the service as well because some services might um, have uh, wait lists. Yeah. Um, one of the things I have noticed is that there's a lot of Facebook pages for people who work in the sector um, that ask questions of other people to say I need a support coordinator that's independent up in... Uh, the northern suburbs mm. can anyone help and uh, we've kind of like formed all of these groups mm. ourselves to be able to try and get the best services for people yeah. so um, maybe an advocate like through DDWA I know mm. that they use those groups quite often they go oh, I've got this complex lady yeah. it's got a 17 year old daughter that needs this that and everything else does anyone know of anyone that's got capacity mm. or um, can work with this target group and then if there is money in the plan for what is called a support coordinator, now they're normally only for people with very complex needs, a support coordinator can then be employed, um, you can contract them and then they will help you access the physio, the OT, okay. the speech, right. speechy. But only for those who are complex and, and particularly vulnerable get funding for support coordination. Right, okay. Otherwise it's up to the individual. So let, let's just take it back one step, Leanne. So I get the letter. So in that letter, does it state how much is in my package or is that another step to go? Okay, so you get a document that's between 9 and 15 pages long. Yeah. And it in English. <laughs> in sure? English. In English. But, 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 it, but in NDIS speak, I should imagine. It would be in NDIS in speak. In NDIS yes. speak. Yeah. And... There's another complexity that's added to it called um, there's three ways you can manage that funding and in that um, usually a planner will speak to you about how you might want to manage that funding and there's one called self-managed, there's one called plan-managed and then there's called agency-managed or NDIA-managed and most people have no idea what 
all those three mean? Yeah, my head's spinning right now. (laughs) (laughs) Self-managed means that you have the capacity to actually engage services yourself and go into a, a web portal and pay people's invoices. So Bernadette, if I was to hire your services and you invoice me, I then go into a portal that has got all the money in there. I put in all these different codes and then they pay me the money and then I pay you the money. So it's a three-step process. Mm-hmm. Plan managed is for those people who couldn't do that or just don't want the hassle of that, of where the NDIS will give you a couple of thousand dollars at the most. Usually it's between one and $2,000 to actually hire an agency that is now, there's a lot of agencies that are set up mm. that will pay the invoices that know what is allowed to be spent and isn't allowed to be spent. So that's normally the one that I tell people mm. if they can to go for that one mm-hmm. because they get a lot more choice, which means that they can actually hire people privately through the private system, like private support workers if they need them and negotiate Um, things like that rather than going through a big agency but then they can choose a big agency if they want to as well the next one is NDIA managed which means that the agency has to actually be registered with the Commonwealth Government as being a almost like quality assured organisation to make sure that they abide by the code of ethics Um, so those agencies often have really big staff not all Mm -hmm. um, And the problem that we're finding at the moment is the turnover is quite substantial. So, for example, you may have great physiotherapist and then um, maybe because they're so great, they're being poached by someone Mm. else or they've been given a promotion or they've moved to a different hub Mm. and then suddenly they don't work with you anymore. And Mm. then your child or you have to start with a new physiotherapist and then that might happen again six months later. Okay. uh, And it just keeps on on happening doesn't always happen that way but NDI and managed big organizations are um, you don't get necessarily the choice of saying I want Bernadette to be my physio mm. um, it will be up to the organization they to appoint select. a person right. so okay. it's about choice and control so mm. plan managed if the NDIA will allow that to be approved mm. um, in most cases Um, Most services can be plan-managed and self-managed, but some services such as positive behaviour support, which is Mm. for people um, who may need to have authorised restrictive practices put in their plan, have to be NDIA-managed because they are um, examined by quality and safeguarding um, Mm. principles as well as the Commission in regards to making sure that people aren't applying restrictive practices if they're not approved by the government. Right. What, what did all that mean? I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> but I, I, <laughs> it's a whole different area. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking about the, uh, you know, the, the barriers for somebody who is from a different language group, a different cultural group, ethnic group. They're not going to go for the plan, manage, self-manage because it's, you know, it's something that it's, it's yet another thing they have to learn. So... In your experience, they'd be going for the uh, the other the third option, the okay. NDIA managed. Yeah. And most organisations, um, you know, try their best, mm. but it's a very challenging time at the moment to mm. attract and retain uh, appropriately yeah. qualified staff. Um, but whether, do you? Yep. Sorry, do you have to choose which way you're going to go when you put in for the? F- you f- do, for the fund? yeah, and so no you, one really explains s- it to you. So, so. So does the amount of money that I get mm. depend on which plan I'm having? No. no. 
No. So let's just say the NDIA have worked out that there's two areas where you get money in as well. The first one is what they call core supports. And the second is called capacity building. Oh, God. I hate that word. <laughs> yeah. Um, core supports is a lot to do. Sometimes it's to do with sometimes people might need equipment mm. or they might need modifications to a home um, or they might want to hire a support worker. Um, maybe some people might be eligible for maintenance of gardening mm. and um, cleaning because their disability prevents them from being yeah. able to... Um, do those tasks um, that all goes into a big pool of money around core supports and they usually work it out per hour so there's all these specified rates and fees and charges that everyone's allowed to charge and then they put it in it? there Leanne, once I get my letter that, that's already determined in the letter you're already told how much is allocated to what is you that are. correct? Yeah. if you are unhappy with it and feel that your goals haven't been um uh, written down properly or you've been misunderstood or you're not um, particularly happy with it if it you are allowed to actually ask for a review but you're only allowed to ask for a review and here's the thing if they deem it a reviewable decision <laughs> <laughs> not can, just because you're unhappy with it <laughs> but who sets the goals it, it does does the actual client or patient or whatever word you want they have somebody to come in the system doing the goals is that how that works well, I believe it's a co-designed process isn't it it's meant to be yeah. but you get an hour and a half to kind of like think about Quick. it but there are some documents that have been produced and one organization that's fantastic actually is the wa wais um individualized support organization mm. and they help people who are plan and self-managed okay. and they've got some great resources and some plan managers actually have some great resources too about how do you identify your goals um, and and set those particular goals so they can be around the, the NDIS have set out eight areas what they call eight domains in the NDIS funding so you can have goals around improving your daily living um, your social and community participation, the relationships in your life, whether they be intimate or family mm. or social. Oh, interesting. Lifelong learning, sorry, education, um, within the home, anything to do with your health and well-being, including mental health, your work, and choice and control in order to be able to have those. So there's eight mm. domains that they will actually provide funding under. Very and broad. All, all eight. Can, you can have goals across all eight domains. You can, yeah. yeah. Okay. Often it's more like two or three. It might be, um, let's just say there's a gentleman that has Down syndrome that's been living with mum and dad all of his life, mm. but mum and dad are getting a little bit older and they want, you know, mm. they're worried for him because he's 40 yeah. and, you know, he doesn't have any friends he just lives his whole life within the family mm. he doesn't go out on his own he's got no confidence in catching public transport mm. uh, doesn't know how to cook or anything like that so underneath um, social and community participation the NDIS will provide um, money for mm. a independent support worker to actually yeah. teach that man um, how to access the community um, 
maybe look at some work options that might be available um, to him, mm. help him learn some independent skills within the home such as cooking and cleaning and that kind of stuff rather than it being an expectation that the parents do all of that. Okay, so so supposedly these goals would have been discussed in the treatment planning because, you know, at that phase when the letters are all here, let's meet up with you, Howard, you want the NDIS, so what are your goals, etc. And that goes in for submission, application, comes back and they say, yep, all these goals across these domains we approve and here's X dollars for this, Y dollars for that, Z dollars for that. Is that, is that how it works? It yeah. does, okay. yeah. So mm -hmm. what happens after the, let's say he, the goal is that this guy's going to, or woman, is, is going to learn how to cook. So once he learns, he or she learns how to cook, is that it? If he's got another goal that he wants to actually develop his independent living skills, then he just has that on the next plan. So plans are generally reviewed every year, although at the moment in order to be able to deal with capacity, the department is now actually approving people for two-year or three-year goals. It depends on where someone's at. So like I'm working with um, kids that have just entered the, you know, middle school mm. in high school, um, they can get like a two- or three-year plan because it won't be really um, necessary for it to be reviewed until they're ready to leave school. So then they will get a big review of maybe a year or two before they're ready to leave school. Mm what they call post-school transition planning mm. and then they'd get quite a really big package to make sure that then that kid is ready, you know, able to access maybe work or study um, or if they're unable to access work and study, still looking at what life still looks like after okay. school. So mm. the NDIS in principle is amazing. It's just the implementation of it, mm. the whole system stuff that seems yeah. to be getting in the way. Yeah, so um, you, you were saying that the review is once a year. So what if I want my plan, my, you know, I'm not, I'm not um, pleased with my plan, I'm not pleased with the service provider. What happens, can I, can I ask for a review of the plan before the year is out or what? Or do I just have to Sometimes people might run out of money because their circumstances have changed. So there's a couple of ways that you can review a plan. Mm -hmm. So if you get a plan in the first three um, and in the first three months you are unhappy with it and it's been deemed that you can review this. Mm -hmm. um, for example, I've assisted a person to go in for a review because they actually live in what is called a rural and remote area um, and the NDIS haven't provided enough money to pay for the pers the provider travel to the area. So all of the money's been burnt up in kilometres and provider travel mm. rather than this mm. service delivery. So within the three months, because that fits the criteria, it was um, the plan wasn't calculated properly. Um, as long as within 90 days of the time that the plan came out, you can review it. You can ask for a review. Oh, so you okay. can access that money while you're waiting for the review. Mm. Um, but there's no guarantee that, you know, you're going to get the money that you're going to get. So, again, if you're going to go for a review, getting some support for review, unless you feel that you've got the capacity to do it yourself, would be advisable either through an advocacy service or okay. at least speaking to someone who knows the NDIS. So, and support coordinators, if you've got one, are really great at helping people mm. with reviews. They do that all the time. Um if during, um, again, I had a, a young man whose circumstances really changed quite a lot. He had quite a really well-funded package, but um, his health condition, um, which affected his disability, um, 
deteriorated him very, very quickly. And so we needed to put in for a review called a change of circumstances review. So someone's circumstances had considerably changed and um, they needed that to be considered by the NDIS to actually increase the funding. So someone can apply for a change of circumstances at any time during a plan. So oh, it could okay. be within after the three-month review period initially right. and if it's a two or three-year plan it can be at the one year or, or two years so as long mm. as you've got some evidence to show that the circumstances have changed it could yeah. be like I've got a gentleman at the moment that's living with mum and dad everything was going fantastic but um, dad has had a stroke and now his living circumstances significantly mm. changed and mum is now caring for dad mm. and so this gentleman needs more mm. more support so we put a change of circumstances in and the NDIS have reviewed that. Okay. So you said earlier that it's it's only up to age 65. What happens when you've had the NDIS for a few years and you've hit 65? It continues. Oh, okay. Okay. So right. it doesn't transfer over into the aged care system mm -hmm. at this point. Um, so a person, as long as they've qualified under 65, then yeah, I think it stays lifelong at this point in time. The legislation hasn't changed yet. There are some reviews of the legislation. I think that's one of the things because aged care is changing at the moment as well. But um, at the moment, you should mm. be able to still be eligible for the NDIS after you turn 65, as wow. long as you've accessed it before that age. Okay. Wow. Well, on that note, Howard, do you have any final questions for Leanne? You look tired. <laughs> I think there's so much information, but well, it's really good information. Well, I'm just trying to take it all in, yeah. um, and, and I'm just wondering, somebody listening to this, what would be their take of it? And um, I'm just wondering whether there's, um, if you want to, uh, I guess, we can't really summarise all this, but I, I, I guess in a way, the best way, if somebody wanted to get an, an overview of what all of this is, there is an NDIS website, I take it? There is. There's a lot of information on there, so maybe allocating, you know, little pockets of time to be able to go through it. And mm. if somebody wants to contact you, as I understand you're a, what do you call yourself, a provider or an advocate? or I'm not an advocate. I'm actually a thera therapy provider, so I provide assistance to people um, around things like emotional regulation. But I would say maybe one of the advocacy agencies would be the first point of contact so if i was if how would i look that up i'd look up under the under, under the heading of uh, when i when i go to do dr google i just put ndis advocacy would i western australia western, western australia, australia, australia yeah. of course yep. yeah and that's across the whole state yeah it should be yes yeah some um specialize in regional and remote and that adds another layer of complexity as you can imagine Telehealth is actually funded under NDIS as well, so um, to try and make it a little bit more mm, accessible. accessible. Mm. And COVID actually um, pushed that along very quickly because when everyone was in shutdown and people did need to actually still access some kind of therapy or support, um, a lot of agencies made themselves accessible through Zoom and MS Teams. So um, teletherapy is definitely something that... Um, Mm. is funded now and will be into the future as well. gives people in rural and remote areas some more choice rather than having to yeah. go for just providers. The only thing, obviously, if you need hands-on, face-to-face support, it still is quite restrictive. Yeah. So I suppose the other thing I need to ask is we spoke about it's, it's not available after 65 as, unless you're in it beforehand, 
But at what age does it start? Do, do, do we get babies on NDIS? Yes. So there's oh, that's the fund. The family gets funded to help look after the babies. That absolutely. How it works? Okay. Absolutely. So there's actually um, a brilliant program. The children under the age of seven are actually funded through the NDIS and what's called early intervention. And um, Wansley is the provider in Western Australia and they do an amazing job of working with all of the health providers and the families in making sure the children um, who have been diagnosed and accepted into the NDIS are actually supported and mm. money can be available to even provide hands-on support for those um, families who've got children who, with very high care needs and they do provide a lot of support. So NDIS has actually been life-changing for a lot of people. Um, my issue with it, it's just so hard to understand, get yeah. your head around and sometimes to access it. But for the majority of people that have got well-funded NDIS plans, it can be life-changing. Life so I do recommend people to persist, don't give up, you will find if you keep on looking you'll find yeah. someone that's going to help you and if you can get the right people around you um, and you feel confident and trusting of those people around you to be able to help you and the person that you love uh, or yourself in terms of what you need um, it can be life-changing just one other final thing so does the NDIS fund translators if they're ever needed there is a system for um, translating fees I think that goes into core supports um, of where people can access translators yeah it shouldn't um, a person should not be unable to access uh, the services because of language mm. barriers yeah so so these fees would cover if I needed any kind of therapy an interpreter present at that service that I'm accessing is that correct so a lot of the disability organisations, unlike drug and alcohol and mental health, don't have access to um, yeah, mental health commission mm. funding for um, mm. interpreters, but they do. They can access them over the phone. So it would be more of um, the TIS over the phone rather than face-to-face, -face, unless the person had to be there face-to-face. -face. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's better than nothing, especially when language is a significant barrier for somebody. Yes. So, yeah. Thank you very much Thank for coming in. For somebody much. that was a bit yeah. worried about it, you've done very <laughs> well, and um, I've learned quite a bit from today's session, so yes. I appreciate it. And indeed, uh, indeed. So, I hope the um, listeners out there that uh, Leanne's managed to unpack a very, very complicated, sophisticated system into a very, very simple um, interpretation of that for you. Um, and, and to hopefully it will raise some more um, questions for you that you can now ask your local providers if you go on the website. Um, and, uh, and thank you, Leanne, for, uh, for sharing your knowledge. Most welcome. Yes. And uh, listeners, so I look forward to joining you again on the next Dr. Bruni show. Um, in the meantime, stay well and don't forget self-care. I'm signing off. Bye-bye.